Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. And today we'll be talking about two sections of Come Follow Me in the Doctrine and Covenants, sections 23 through 25 and 26 through 28. Section 23 is talking to a few people regarding their duties in the church. Section 24 is in response to some persecution that the early church, and in particular Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, were starting to face. Section 25 is all to Emma Smith, Joseph's wife, talking about her responsibilities. Section 26 states that all things should be done by common consent. Section 27, they go over using water instead of wine at church during sacrament meeting. And section 28 is in a response to a man called Hiram Page having a stone that he was supposedly receiving revelations from and Joseph's reaction to that. Section 23, I just think it's really cool that God gives us unique individual guidance and revelation because he knows our hearts, needs, desires, and paths. I feel like part of the Doctrine and Covenants, at least what we've read so far, when it talks about all these people joining the church and wanting to help Joseph, and they're all kind of called to share the gospel because the church is so new, like everyone's receiving kind of the same calling, it gets really repetitive. Yeah. And Section 23 all these different people who have had similar calls in the past, it gives them very individual guidance. It even says that some of them are not supposed to teach the gospel yet, and some of them are. All of the guidance is really unique, and I thought that that was really cool. Hmm. But yeah, section 24, I took the most notes when I was just reading the scriptures in general. So it was given to the prophets and apostles when they were secluded and lonely. Well, I should say, Doctrine and Covenants doesn't mention exactly what's happening at the time, but Come Follow Me does go into it a little bit. So let me just read. In June of 1830, Emma and members of the Knight family wished to be baptized, but enemies of the church tried to disrupt what should have been a sacred experience. First, they destroyed the dam that had been built to provide enough water for baptisms. Even after the dam was repaired, persecutors gathered to shout threats and mock those being baptized. Then, just as Joseph was about to confirm the new members, he was arrested for upsetting the community by preaching about the Book of Mormon. It seemed like an unpromising start for the Lord's newly restored church, but in the midst of this uncertainty and upheaval, the Lord provided precious words of counsel and encouragement which represented his voice unto all. I had never heard that before. I didn't know that people destroyed a dam so people couldn't be baptized. So that gives even more context to section 24. I was thinking about when we did the Q&A the other day, uh, there was a question about what to do if you feel lonely. And section 24, I feel like this would be a good section to read if you feel lonely. But especially I focused on verse 8 and verse 9. Didn't you think those were cool? Yeah, those are interesting. So. Verse 8 says, Be patient in afflictions, for thou shalt have many, but endure them, for lo, I am with thee even until the end of thy days. And then verse 9 said, And in temporal labors thou shalt not have strength, for this is not thy calling. And then it goes into (laughs) attending to thy calling. And actually, I connected it to verse 12 too, 
verse 12, it's kind of more talking to Oliver Cowdery, but at the end of verse 12, it mm-hmm. says, and I will give unto him strength such as is not known among men. And I thought that both these verses, it was cool that they're almost right next to each other because it really kind of redefines strength and weakness. It says that they're not going to be strong in temporal labors because that's not their calling. But then verse 12 says, you'll have strength such as is not known to men. So ultimately, what I pulled from this is that spiritual strength is the most important strength that you can have. And you're not a weak person for having weakness in the body or weakness in the mind or other weaknesses that are given a lot of attention when we talk about weaknesses, but ultimately it's not as important. Yeah, I do like that. What did you think about verse 13? (laughs) Require not miracles, except I shall command you, except casting out devils, healing the sick, and against poisonous serpents, and against deadly poisons. I was going to ask you what you thought about that verse, because I thought the very first part was really interesting. Require not miracles, except I shall command you. In my mind, in that context of that verse being shared, it more goes into like, don't be showy with the priesthood, I guess. If you look at the footnote for miracles, it references Matthew 4, 5 through 7, when the devil took Jesus on top of the temple and said, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up. And then Jesus says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then underneath it says miracle and sign seekers. So the fact that they use require is an interesting word. It makes me think that maybe they're saying like, you shouldn't have to have a miracle to prove something, mm-hmm. to prove the validity of, yeah, it doesn't even say of what. <laughs> it doesn't say, it just says require not miracles in general. It doesn't say in these instances. I guess if you read this in context of this commandment to declare the gospel, because it's right after verse 12, right? And it says, require not miracles. I feel like this is what they're talking about in terms of Oliver saying that he should not attempt to conduct miracles just to convince people to join the church. Mm -hmm. It is interesting, the context of like the dam being destroyed and Joseph being arrested in those moments. They could have tried to be like, curse them, Lord, or rebuild the damn Lord, or, you know, (laughs) call on these miracles to like stop these people. But they were restrained in a way. And it makes me think of those scriptures that's like, bear with patience thine affliction. Mm. Just trust in the Lord that he'll move you forward and he'll guide you through these things. Do you know what I mean? Like those things had to happen. And the saints had to just bear with patience their afflictions. Yeah, I just really hate the word patience. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to know with the existence of miracles and blessings and the priesthood. It is hard to know when those moments to be patient are. And to me, I feel like when people have told me to be patient, it was normally because I was upset about some injustice. And this is going all the way back to me being a kid telling me I was overreacting or that I needed to be patient and telling me that in conjunction with calm down or don't be so loud. You know what I mean? Just a lot of emotional invalidation. Mm -hmm. I kind of bristle whenever someone talks about patience because I feel like it's normally accompanied by gaslighting and emotional invalidation. Mm. 
rarely do people ever use it after validating someone's emotions and them going through a hard time. Like, be patient in afflictions for thou shalt have many. To me, that doesn't, that's not very comforting. (laughs) Just be patient. You're going to have even more hard things. Like, no, no, that's even more reason for me not to be patient. I don't know. I think also, I worry that when we talk about like faith and patience, we're reverting back to the whole like toxic positivity mindset that's pretty ableist, you know, that we're leaving the people who are feeling abandoned and yearning for healing and even negative emotions about their disabilities that we're like leaving them alone out there while we like go inside to be patient. Mm. Just a disclaimer, I share the following thoughts from my friend who is not Mormon or religious, but still listens to our podcast, and I'm paraphrasing them because we have a mostly Mormon audience. However, that paraphrased words don't necessarily 100% represent my friend's views. Like, I actually had someone reach out to me this week, and they've been listening to our podcast for a while, and they're not a member of the church, but they said, Serena, I don't know how how y'all do it. Like, I got angry recently listening because, maybe not angry, but they just felt like, what if I'm not happy with my disability? What if I don't want to be patient? What if I don't have faith to be healed, but I want to be healed, and I don't think it's holy for me to have a disability. Mm. And they are having a lot of struggles right now with their disability because they're in the process of getting the proper diagnosis and medical care. So they're like right in the thick of it. You know what I mean? Mm. At the beginning Mm -hmm. of this process. I never want any of our listeners to feel like we're trying to force positivity and faith down their throat. You know, I want to make sure that we provide enough emotional validation for them, even people who are struggling with their disabilities and feel pain and heartache surrounding it, who have not come to peace with it, for them to feel comfortable being in this space with us. Mm-hmm. That's so important. Yeah, I. everyone's in a different place with their disability. And that is the challenge of this podcast is we can't speak for all disabled people when we share experiences or when we share interviews. Yeah, But yeah, there is totally that side of it. And when you read these scriptures, for a lot of people, it can be very comforting. And for some people, it can feel like I can't be comforted in this because it's too hard. Like, I don't understand the purpose behind what I struggle through. That's a hard Mm -hmm. place to be in. (sighs) I've been in that place on and off. You just can't even comprehend how you're included in the plan of the gospel when your life is the way it is. Or it's hard to comprehend God's love for you or understand how he loves you and why you can't feel that love. That's a really hard place to be in. And my heart just goes out to people that are in that circumstance. And I hope that we can be there to sit with you in that. I don't think that there's a way that we can just magically wave a wand and fix that for people. But we we get it. Like, the gospel can be really hard with that sometimes. And maybe it will be helpful for people to know in my experience that I've gone through it and come out of it and gone through it and come out of it. And it's helped me personally when I am going through a hard time to know like I've gotten through it up to this point. And that gives me hope. 
Yeah. I don't know, even without looking towards the resurrection and the next life, even just like if you're experiencing disability in this life and looking at verse eight, be patient in afflictions for thou shalt have many. If you're looking forward, all that is being prophesied or promised to you or all that you're aware of is more like pain and heartache and discrimination. How do you deal with that? You know, if that's all that you can see right now, what would you say to that? Even though I've gone through times where I feel like it's been hard for me to feel God's love and to understand that he really understands me, I do believe that my mind and my spirit has come back around to that concept when I'm stepping out of that dark place. I do believe in the second half of that verse that says, but endure them for lo, I am with thee even unto the end of thy days. I feel like when Christ was on the cross and the spirit was drawn from him, so he was like Heavenly Father was away from him and he was literally alone. I feel like that part is kind of taught like, but that level of loneliness will never happen to us. Mm -hmm. I don't know if someone said that in a lesson or if that's a general belief or if that's just what I've pulled from lessons I've been in. But I do feel like that's been the case for me at times where I feel like I'm yearning God's love, I'm yearning understanding, and it's not coming to me, and I don't understand why. And for me, it has come in waves where I've gone in those moments, and then I've had moments where I've found peace in the gospel and peace in Christ and greater understanding, and I don't have as difficult of a time with my disability. So I do feel like even if those moments come, for me personally, I do get to the time where it says, I am with thee even unto the end of thy days. Like I know that Christ is there and he is aware of me, even though I don't feel it all the time. It's just, I know that we have people listening who are not Christian. If you didn't have this belief in a divine being who loves you and watches over you, even when you don't feel it, like how would that change how you approach being patient in afflictions? and having many. <laughs> oh, it would change a lot. I mean, I I hopefully would still cling to the idea that I have been through hard things and I've made it through everything up until the point that I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. But it would change the more eternal perspective of like, I am a daughter of God who loves me and I have felt that strength before and I know I will feel that strength again. To me, that is the value of the gospel. That is the value of having God in your life. You can feel real strength from him. You can feel real power in the love that he shares with all his children. And that's a real, almost tangible love that affects your life. I can't explain why it comes in and out of my life or why I feel like it comes in and out of my life. But I still have the faith that I know that God is aware of me and that I'm not left on the wayside in this plan. What are your thoughts on it? I don't know. It's hard for me right now because like we talked about disability being based in um, society versus in ourselves, right? Yeah. And right now, like I'm barely going out in public, like never, like maybe once a month. (laughs) I go Mm -hmm. to the store or the bank or something and I mostly like do whatever I want all day because of because I'm just doing my study program and I'm living with my parents. And so for me, it's like my disability, like largely like 
goes away, or at least my awareness of my disability goes away, if that makes sense, when I have no social life, when I'm just sitting on my couch all day, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to emotionally connect with that, but at the same time, like, I know... I have been in that space before, and so I'm trying to put my mind in that spot, and that's just kind of what I was thinking. Anyway, I think we discussed that topic, I wouldn't say satisfactorily, but we have a lot to ponder out regarding that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just want to say one thing about verse 16 and 24, talking about, um, whosoever shall lay their hands upon you by violence, ye shall command to be smitten in my name. And behold, I will smite them according to your words in mine own due time. I actually kind of like that. (laughs) You know, like if someone is discriminating against you or is persecuting you, disabled people face this all the time. (laughs) I like that. He's basically giving Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery permission to curse them. (laughs) It's, yeah, it makes me think about how Christ is an advocate. Like, yeah, he doesn't just like let things go. Like, justice will be served. Yeah, I've said recently, uh, this is kind of like a trope that I say all the time that I'm an arbiter of God's justice or that I'm a tool in God's hand to bring more justice on the earth. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people are like, oh, let's leave justice up to God. Like, only God can judge, you know? I think that's false, and I really hate it when people say that. Uh, This scripture is just another example of how God really does use mortal people to execute justice. (laughs) Yeah. He's not saying, like, oh, I'll get to it when I get to it. You know what I mean? He's saying, yeah, command them to be smitten, and then I'll do it, you know? (laughs) Eventually. Yeah, I think when people say, like, we are his hands, he, like, doesn't take injustices, and he stands with the people who are being oppressed, always. I do believe that is part of being his servant and ministering. Yeah, I love this. I love this verse. I love this relation to liberation theology and social justice. All I'm going to say is I am, I'm going to apply this scripture in my life. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Okay, section 25. Do you have anything specifically regarding disability in section 25? Yeah, let me say really quick. Section 25 is the section that goes into Revelation given to Emma. And in Come Follow Me, it actually shares Emma's patriarchal blessing, which kind of surprised me. Okay. Yeah, but one part that really stood out to me is it talks about Emma's disabled children. Mm. Lucy Max Smith talking about Emma says that she's endured every species of fatigue and hardship. And then it talks about how Joseph's dad, Joseph Smith Sr., gave Emma a patriarchal blessing. And in it, it talks about her deceased children. And it says, in this thou are not to be blamed about the fact that Mm. they passed away. And I thought that that was really cool to share. I mean, there must be so many feelings when you lose a child. But guilt, I'm sure, is a huge one. Like, what did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. And I really hope that people reflect on this. I'm going to call it doctrine. In this, thou are not to be blamed. This is a doctrine that's shared on the disability page of the church as well. That disability does not happen because of sin of the family or sin of the child before in the pre-earth life. Yeah. It just happens. It's just a natural variance of being that people experience. So 
I thought that phrase was really cool that that was included in her patriarchal blessing because her disabled children were still part of her life. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm really glad you pointed that out. The very first prophet of our restored gospel and his wife had disabled children, many of them. And that's something that we don't talk about. You would think that disability would be more prominent and more discussed in the church considering that. So I I hope that we can continue bringing that to the forefront. Mm -hmm. Also, just want people to know that section 25 is the only section in the over 130 sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that is given to a woman. (laughs) Is it really? Yep. That's what Elise and Channing pointed out on Faithful Feminist. So I encourage everybody to go read or listen to that. This episode was released on Monday, March 8th, and it's Emma's election. They discuss it in depth. So I don't want people to think that we're ignoring it. I just want them to go to the people who have the time and the calling to point it out and discuss it in depth. Okay, so section 26, it says in verse 2, all things shall be done by common consent in the church. By much prayer and faith, for all things you shall receive by faith. Amen. Talking a little bit about what common consent means. So that's actually a concept that is more based in Protestantism. Specifically, the Methodists and the Reformed Baptist practiced it. More based in in their tradition and beliefs than in drawing directly from scripture. So what this means back then, and I'm reading this from a blog called bycommonconsent.com. And this is a Mormon blog that I've referenced a lot. It's one of my favorites because they get nerdy about stuff and that's right up my alley. Um, (laughs) Okay, so this is an article on their website called By Common Consent. So both the name of the website and this article is called By Common Consent. And this article was released in January of 2011. So the person writing this was just talking about ward conference. And, and in ward conference, for people who are not members of Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we usually sustain slash get new leaders or show our support for the current leaders that we have. And then a bunch of people like give speeches. So that's the context of this article. Nowadays, people in the church, when we quote unquote sustain, when we show our support for leaders, when they're getting new positions in the church, we raise our right hand and it's just kind of automatic. So they ask us if we sustain them and we raise our hand or not. And then they ask if anyone is opposed and you raise your hand or not. But like, The only time in my entire life that I've ever seen anyone oppose a sustaining is a few years ago when we had people. And and so the the thing, like I'm calling them protesters, but they're just people who opposed. Mm -hmm. But they came to the conference building during general conference a few years back and you could hear them in the background and it kind of ruffled some feathers and and made the news, you know, when people dissent. It makes the news in the Mormon church because we just do it automatically and people who oppose are seen as protesters. Okay, so this article says, Back in the day, quote, In terms of common consent, church meetings were organized by vote of attendees. Meetings would be chaired by not necessarily Joseph, meaning Joseph Smith, but whoever got the vote. The recorder of proceedings was also voted in. Candidates were defined by preliminary discussion. 
It took a fair number of years of this before people settled on the notion that church office should determine the meeting leader. The impulse for electing presiders on the spur of the moment at gatherings was pretty strong, which that kind of blew my mind. Imagine ward conference discussion. The meeting is open for discussion of chair. Brother Bosworth, I think they just like named a random name, gets the vote. A vocal semi-literate member who a large number of people find has nice hair. (laughs) And, And they're saying, I'm only being slightly silly here. Many early gatherings involve families and family loyalty, often dictated vote, no voting by women. The possible egalitarian nature of leadership is illustrated by the Hiram Page incident, which we're going to talk about later. It took some time before not selecting Joseph Smith as spur-of-the-moment leader would be considered an insult. Uh, Late in Joseph Smith's Nauvoo tenure, it was pretty well established that he, meaning Joseph, would conduct or assign others to conduct public church meetings. In outlying areas, however, things were not cut and dry. In any case, common consent still had the force of elective power. Witness Joseph Smith's wish to discard Sidney Rigdon from the church presidency. It was put to a vote and Joseph lost, despite him being the prophet. So that was interesting to me. Like back then, it, it was way more democratic than, than it is now. Like not only did you vote on leaders and callings, but you literally voted on who was going to be in charge of the meeting. It wasn't just whoever has the highest rank in the church who is there, which is how we do it now. You know, like if the stake president is there, then he's presiding. But also they didn't let women preside True. still. I mean, they didn't let women preside or vote. But my point is that it wasn't just whoever has the highest calling conducts the meeting and presides. It's whoever they, they discuss it and then they vote on it. Yeah, I bring that up because I was talking with Brian about that the other day. Mm-hmm. We were questioning like what technically is a function of the priesthood and what technically isn't. And yeah. I personally believe like if a Relief Society president is in the room and like, I don't know, an elders quorum president, like why would the elders quorum president lead the meeting over a Relief yeah. Society president to preside? It's deferred to like rank in the priesthood but if you think of rank in leadership the relief society president ranks above most members in the ward but would never Mm -hmm. be called to preside over a meeting even if it was just a small meeting yeah i think that's a good point like it just shows how you can still like be committed to an idea that is progressive and egalitarian but also still have your privilege prevent you from being fully aware of everything that needs to be done in order to make it truly egalitarian yeah back in the day like yeah they decided who would lead by vote and discussion but no women were there you know versus nowadays like what you're talking about let's say they make a decision a policy change that relief society presidents can preside if she's not present then her first counselor, and if they're not present, then the second counselor. And then it's still this top-down hierarchy. Both of them have their advantages and disadvantages. The one before was egalitarian but sexist, and if we made that change, then it would be less sexist, but still not as egalitarian as it could be because it's still top-down. But now we're not voting anyway. Like, no one cares. They just It's just a show. You know, and we talked about how we're not supposed to do things for show. Mm. <laughs> I have mixed yeah, feelings on that. it's become a ritual and a tradition. Well, actually, sorry, 
I, I was calling it a ritual and I realized that's part of the quote that is in Come Follow Me. It says, what is common consent? And it talks about what the principle is formally sustaining by raising our hands to show support. And then it says, as President Gordon B. Hinckley taught, the procedure of sustaining is much more than a ritualistic raising of the hand. It is a commitment to uphold, to support, to assist those who have been selected. And that's an ideal and how it should be. But is that really what's going on? I don't know. And it's hard to not just for disabled people, the privilege of attending. Let's say you aren't able to attend for some time and then you come back and you're like, oh, I'm back at church. Great. But when you sustain people, you don't know who you're sustaining unless yeah. you know them very well. So that also goes into like consistently going to church. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're really welcomed into the church and are making real connections and really know people, ministering, and those all can be barriers to disabled people too. Yes. That's a huge privilege of knowing who the leaders are. You know, I mean... And I'm not saying that all the leaders have skeletons in their closet. And like, part of me is like, oh, I'm just going to do my little PI background check every time somebody gets a new calling. But (laughs) I won't do that. But there's more things that go into whether or not someone should have a specific calling and lead us in choosing them to be our leader than just whether or not they have a porn addiction or have abuse in their family. There's more things about temperament and background and experience and sensitivity to marginalized peoples. When we vote slash sustain these people without really discussing that, without learning about them, without being given the opportunity to learn about them, then you're just basically saying that those factors don't matter. Yeah, 100%. I agree. When you're in your calling, there's people that say, you know, they were called so the Lord could work with them and so they could learn. Mm. And I think that you can grow in a calling. But also, I don't think that people should be called if they don't have empathy for marginalized communities. Like, it should be very baseline. It should be like, do you have a belief in Jesus Christ? Do you believe the Book of Mormon? Do you empathize with marginalized communities and strive to lift their voices? Like, it should be one of the questions. Mm. It should be a standard because that's literally a covenant. Mourn with those that mourn. I think a lot of neurotypical people just don't take things literally. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just something that bothers me as someone who is neurodivergent. Anyway... So even in that little thing that I referenced from bycommonconsent.com, the possible egalitarian nature of leadership is illustrated by the Hiram Page incident, okay? Uh, Which I thought was funny. That's literally the next section that we're talking about. Section 28, Hiram Page, the Whitmer family were his in-laws. He was visiting them and he was using a black seer stone to receive revelation about the organization and location of Zion. Apparently it was pretty convincing because the Whitmer family and Oliver Cowdery believed him. And then Joseph showed up, found out about it, and was like, "Uh uh-uh. And that's section 28, is kind of Joseph's reaction and revelation regarding him using the seer stone to receive revelation. And apparently this revelation was even announced in conference because the church was pretty Mm -hmm. small back then. It might've just been like a ward meeting or something. But anyway, Mm -hmm. coming back to by common consent, apparently there was considerable discussion about it, which I think is interesting. It wasn't just like they announced it. Oh, 
you shouldn't listen to Hiram Page and his revelations. They talked about it, which is something that I don't think we would ever do in public in church nowadays. You know, if anybody is going to be talking about it, it's going to be like in ward council. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently at the conference, Page agreed to discard the stone and said, sure, I agree that only Joseph can receive revelation. And then members voted unanimously in support of Paige's decision. And the fate of the stone and the revelations is unknown. Later, Hiram Page left the church and joined William McClellan's Church of Christ. But he was actually one of the 11 witnesses, and he always testified to the Book of Mormon. What's interesting to me is here Joseph is talking about his experience with the first vision and talking about how people were invalidating him. The whole, I knew it, I knew God knew it, and no one could dissuade me from that fact, you know? And here he is telling someone else, no, what you're doing is fake. And that, to me, I feel like has a lot of allegory for the disabled community, especially when it comes to, like, invisible illnesses and power and privilege. It just, ooh, like, hmm. What was Hiram doing different than Joseph? You know? And you can say, well, God chose Joseph. Okay. But, ugh, like, lots of people received revelation or divination, might be a more accurate term, through these folk magic principles back then. And Joseph's use of the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon was rooted in the folk magic that was around at that time. I find that infuriating that he isn't even the one who came up with it. Like he's a product of his culture. And now he's saying that no one else in his church can do it. And I was researching this a little bit more. And maybe people aren't using this anymore, but there's a seminary teacher manual. I think it's from 2014. So I don't know if this was thrown out with Come Follow Me. (laughs) Haven't been in seminary since like 2012. But it talks about this. There's a bunch of crap about people trying to imitate things. There's a bunch of crap about the devil. And there's a bunch of crap about consent and authority and staying in your place. And then at the end of it, there is a little footnote. It's in very fine print. It's this long paragraph. And in the middle of it, in fine print, it says that Joseph also might have used a seer stone, except we don't know the details, which is funny because we do know the details. The church has finally like admitted to that in more recent years that Joseph used a seer stone. And uh, there's this quote from Neil A. Maxwell in this fine print about the seer stone. And he says, quote, Satan is not an enlightening subject. I consider him to be the great imitator. It is not good practice to become intrigued by Satan and his mysteries. No good can come from getting close to evil. Like playing with fire, it is too easy to get burned. The only safe course is to keep well distance from him and any of his wicked activities or nefarious practices. The mischief of devil worship, sorcery, witchcraft, voodooism, casting spells, black magic, and all other forms of demonism should always be avoided. (laughs) And mm, I have so many problems with that quote. Wow. First of all, Joseph Smith drew on some of these practices when he translated the Book of Mormon. So it's very hypocritical. Second of all, you're equating 
people receiving revelation with devil worshiping and basically casting a moral judgment on them and encouraging your followers to cast a moral judgment on them. And, and not even a moral judgment, but like, when I say that, I mean an eternal judgment, the kind of judgment that we're taught we're not supposed to do, that we're supposed to leave that up to Christ. Third of all, it's pretty racist. The fact that voodooism is in here and black magic and quote unquote magic practices or folklore magic that are more practiced in other communities like voodoo is actually an African diasporic religion that developed in Haiti between the 16th and the 19th centuries. So in Haiti, I don't know if our listeners know, there were a lot of slaves. So voodoo developed among these communities amid the slave trade. It rose through the blending of traditional religions brought to the island by enslaved West Africans. So combining their practices kind of with some Roman Catholic teachings of the colonialists who were controlling the island. So to say that voodooism is of the devil and you should avoid it is like, to me, I don't even think it's kind of racist. I think it's super racist because you're saying the kind of mysticism and miracle that brought about the Book of Mormon, well, that's a good thing. That's a miracle. That's from God, you know? But we don't use the word magic here. Anything other than that, like voodooism, that was developed by slaves in Haiti as a result of combining their religion from before they were slaves with Roman Catholicism, saying that that's from the devil and you should avoid it. Like, ooh, I find that pretty racist. Yeah, yeah. And even, like, I've learned a lot recently about how the existence of the word black or the word white and anything that has to do with darkness or negativity or evil or goodness, positivity, whatever, respectively. Like white people are the ones that create that meaning a lot. So we have to pay attention when the word black is associated with something negative and the word white is associated with something positive. There's underlying racism there formed by white people who formed the language and it's still used today. So that needs to be pointed out. I was going to say I'm so grateful that the church has updated some things according to policy, like the handbook, how we talk about other faiths. In our current handbook, under other faiths, it says, much that is inspiring, noble, and worthy of the highest respect is found in many other faiths. Missionaries and other members must be sensitive and respectful toward the beliefs of others and avoid giving offense. So yeah, it seems like they're not so much like, ooh, stay away from this and this and this and this with other faiths or spiritualities or religions. That's good. But there's random things that the handbook warns against. Randomly actually says stay away from being hypnotized. Like they advise against it because it interferes with their agency. So randomly they'll like give advice on certain things that can do with spirituality outside of our church itself but other faiths in general other religions that's their statements that's good to know still doesn't excuse away past racist quotes though we just have to say (laughs) and then yeah back to vocabulary how we use language 
quote-unquote magic or like you said miracles divination however Mm -hmm. you want to define it it just uses it differently yeah it's interesting to say that god is in one and that the devil's in the other when the vocab words we use to describe what's happening are different but kind of the same thing depending on your perspective well i would say the vocab words are different because the words have different associations and attached to those words are moral implications, you know? Mm -hmm. And so calling one thing a miracle and revelation from God, whereas in substance, it really isn't that different from something that we're calling satanic or sorcery or black magic or devil worship or witchcraft. Those words have power, you know? And if Mm -hmm. in substance, they're really not that different, then you show your biases by using certain words in one practice and certain words to describe another practice. And also, I wanted to say, I think this is ableist too, considering how much church structure has changed, even from 1830 until now, it's almost been 200 years, and it has changed to become less democratic, less egalitarian, more authority-based, more bureaucratic, I think it's also become more ableist. Because when you have all these rules in a system, you're having to generalize people and you're making the rules based off of what fits for the majority. And people with disabilities are often not counted in that majority. Then it's always referring back to policy when someone is requesting an accommodation. It's a movement away from individualism and towards blatant authority over all things. I think that can be really devastating and invalidating as someone who is neurodivergent and someone who's disabled. Like, where are we supposed to turn? The structure itself, as the church grows, it gets more bureaucratic. And this is just a function of organizations. Like, the larger you get, the harder it is to keep control, and so the more controlling you have to get with your organization. And the church is probably going to continue to grow. I have no problem observing that fact. So I think it's just going to get worse in some sense. And so what are disabled people supposed to do? If the church is not going to be inclusive of us, I don't think we should be casting judgment on any disabled people who bring in other practices to supplement their faith if the church isn't doing it. For example, if you can't physically get to church to partake of the sacrament, and for some reason or another, someone can't come bring you the sacrament, but you still want to partake of the sacrament, and you decide, you know what, I'm going to bless it myself. I think that'd be really radical in the church for someone to bless it themselves if they don't have the priesthood, women or non-binary people or trans people, but disabled people, especially if they can't attend church because they're immunocompromised because there's a global pandemic going on. Like maybe that's something that someone wants to do. Maybe they still want to feel the power of the sacrament. So they read from the sacrament prayers, but that Mm -hmm. is something that is out of line according to these policies that prohibit people using unauthorized divination, unauthorized power, unauthorized quote-unquote magic. Mm -hmm. That's just one example that I can think of, but there are lots of other examples. As contrast, I wanted to share some quotes from an article I found about disabled people and witchcraft. (laughs) 
nowadays. So the title of this article is called The Disabled People Turning to Witchcraft and Magic. And that's M-A-G-I-C-K. It says, given the, quote, invisible forces that can influence our health, it makes sense that there's a growing intersection between the disabled and chronically ill communities and those who practice magic. And some quotes from the people here. One person named Cosmo, who is non-binary and lives with porphyria, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, fibromyalgia, and epilepsy. Previously an atheist, Cosmo says that practicing spells saved my life rather concretely. But don't imagine that Cosmo's witchcraft involves calling upon dark powers for improvements in health or finances. Rather, Cosmo says that magic serves more as a self-soothing mechanism, a crucial mechanism for any disabled person. And that's crucial because a lot of times no one's going to soothe us but us. People forget about us, you know. We have to learn how to self-soothe. And then another person said... Magic has helped reinforce that sense of identity and autonomy as a disabled woman that would otherwise be very vulnerable. And another person said, it's a tool that helps us feel protected and connects us to the divine without any need to use any middlemen, institutions, or buildings. It's an incredibly personalized, accessible, and flexible practice for someone with disabilities. Another quote, magic should and can very much so be accessible. Witchcraft is whatever it means to you. What I wanted to point out with these quotes is these people are turning towards witchcraft for the very fact that it's accessible to them, whereas other religions are not accessible. Maybe because you have to go through all these authorities, or you have to fill out forms, or you have to go to buildings that are inaccessible, versus witchcraft is whatever you want it to be. And so a disabled person is able to be validated without having to rely on an outside source that is very likely ableist. To me, I just think that's very beautiful. It's interesting the difference in the approach to quote-unquote magic and witchcraft that a disabled person might view versus the way Neil A. Maxwell viewed it. Does that make sense? Like, Mm -hmm. Yeah. While you're sharing that, I was thinking about how on my mission there was a member Mm-hmm. that testified to us as missionaries that essential oils were a form of witchcraft that were generally accepted and it was leaking into Mormon culture and how it's the devil like leaking into our church. And I'm like, it is interesting how broad, like when it comes down to it, what is it? You know, it can be defined by so many different things. Even this member on my mission defined it as essential oils, which how big are those? <laughs> Uh, oh man. So yeah, it is interesting like like finding resources and things that work for your body or your mind or you know whatever needs you have based on your disability, how those can be taboo to certain people. Yeah, and I I'm not here to try to well, how do I say this tactfully and also honestly? I'm not here to change your mind about witchcraft if you like are absolutely repelled by it. What I'm saying is look at the roots of it. Look at not only the roots, but the fruit, okay? The roots of witchcraft are in these cultures that are not Christian, but these people are all still children of our heavenly parents, right? According to our beliefs as Mormons, and they deserve to be validated. 
these people and these cultures who are not Christian. They deserve to be validated and respected. Also, again, we have roots in it too as Mormons. And the fruit of witchcraft in this article that I just referenced is that it provides accommodations to disabled and neurodivergent people who could not find those accommodations any other way. Versus Neil A. Maxwell saying that it's from Satan and the roots of it is playing with fire. Like the implication is that you're going to go to hell or get burned if you practice witchcraft. So I guess my question is, how much of this is fear of the devil and how much of it is just trying to keep power in a patriarchal society that is trying to consolidate power in a church that is growing. Because again, remember, the whole reason we're talking about this is because Hiram Page used a seer stone and received revelations or divinations about it. And I'm not going to say that he was faking it or not because what he wrote down was burned or lost. So I don't really know. But the point is that him receiving revelation and divination for the church was a threat to Joseph and to the growing church. That is why we start talking about witchcraft and it being of the devil. Like, I think the devil in that sense is the scapegoat. I think that's meant to distract people from the fact that Joseph is trying to maintain his authority in a pretty, like, tumultuous time period. I mean, y'all have heard me talk about authority in the church before. I think it can be very empowering to find authority within yourself to live your life the way that brings most peace and happiness to you. And for some people, that is through practicing magic and engaging in witchcraft. (laughs) I need to mention this just in case. A lot of witches don't even believe in Satan. Like, they're not Christian, so they don't have a concept of Satan, a lot of them. And so, like, saying that they're worshipping the devil is such a misnomer. Like, there are a lot of witches who are secular, a lot of witches who are atheists, even. And they're not worshipping, the way we think of it, any particular god. They're just trying to live more in harmony with the earth and trying to use that as a way to increase their personal power and insight in their own lives. So I just wanted to dispel that up front. I'm glad that you took the time to explain it the way you did, because it makes a lot more sense to me now than initially. I think this section is really significant. In my mind, the treatment of neurodiverse people and people that have their own spiritual insights and revelations is so unnecessary and strange in the church. Even if it's just like a slight, oh, well, I think this way. People are like, the devil's leading me away. Mm. Or, you know, this is the first steps of leaving the church. And that's like the worst thing ever to leave yeah. the church. I do believe that we have a prophet that receives guidance from God. And there can be people that believe differently. Because I believe there's a prophet that receives guidance from God and revelation, I do believe people can talk to him from the bottom up and that can guide his revelation. But I also believe that if someone like disagrees with the prophet in certain things and like tries to push what they're believing to other people and lead people away from what the prophet is saying, I believe that there's harm in that. But I don't know if that's what Hiram Page is doing in that moment. Yeah. The thing that he was learning about with his seer stone was 
where Zion was located, the city of Zion. And it goes in section 28 to Mm -hmm. say, like, no man knoweth where the city of Zion was built. I think for the church to function with a prophet, we have to be able to trust the prophet and that there can only be this one prophet to lead the current church. And there has to be guidance when people bring things up and then the prophet speaks to it. But I'm surprised at the reaction against Hiram Page in this moment because he wasn't trying to be like, Joseph is wrong in what he's doing. I'm the prophet. His question was about where Zion was. And then Mm -hmm. the reaction, it seems, is a lot bigger. So this, to me, in my mind, seems like more of a natural neurodivergence where he's just thinking differently and asking different questions than people are asking. And he's sharing with people his revelation, like what he's found out according to his understanding and according to what he believes God told him. Um, so that's where my mind goes with uh, disability in this section. I I don't know necessarily that Hiram Page was neurodivergent, but just the act of how he thought differently and was asking different questions. I think it's interesting how that was shut down and mm-hmm. how that attitude is still super prevalent in the church today. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. And I agree with the latter part of what you said wholeheartedly definitely can see this as an example of neurodivergence. Although I do want to say in response to what you said about if someone is leading away from the prophet, like and causing harm, that that's problematic. I think that that feeling that you have there is very much informed by our culture of authority, because I think we're just really scared to dissent. Like the thing that I read before from By Common Consent talked about how one time Joseph Smith wished to discard Rigdon from the church presidency, and they voted, and Joseph lost. And that was accepted. They differed, and he was the prophet then, right? He was the prophet this whole time that he was alive, and they disagreed with him, and that was still seen as, like, the church functioning. It wasn't seen as people taking away Joseph's prophetic mantle or people rebelling against the prophet. It was just seen as an accepted way of the church function, kind of a checks and balances on the prophet's authority. And so I think that is something that we can ponder in our lives now and maybe not come to a conclusion right now, but just realize sustaining the prophet looked very different back in the early days of the church. And how can that influence our relationship with the leaders of the church now? And are there enough checks and balances on the church now? If not, what kinds of checks and balances on these leaders do we need? What would be harmful? What would not be harmful? What would be inclusive? What would not be inclusive? What would align with our mandate to mourn with those that mourn and what would not, you know, what would afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I think that's something that we can ponder on and I don't think it's set in stone. I just don't want people to think that they're evil or bad or be frightened if they disagree with the prophet. I want people to know that there is <laughs> there is life beyond disagreeing with something that a church leader has said. In our history, church leaders have said some things and it turns out, oh, they were not inspired at that time and the church has like had to retrace their steps and explain it away. Just know that this is a natural process and it happens and you're not going to agree with everything that the church leader said, 
And don't force yourself to agree. If something really bothers you, I want you to know that it's okay to explore that and that we're here for you. I'm always here for you if you have questions or disagreements <laughs> with church authorities that you can't share with anybody else. Because believe me, I've had a lot of those. I was going to say, there's that thought that you said earlier that you don't like the wait in patience idea. Yeah. If you do hear something that an apostle or prophet says and it hurts you and and you're confused by it and you don't agree with it, sometimes it happens and things change and it's pointed out as wrong and sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. And yet it's hard for me to say wait in patience every time that happens because I know that there are things that affect some people more than it would affect me. Yeah. In my case, that has happened to me where something is like the policy you said, and I'm like, uh, what? Like, I don't understand this. Mm -hmm. I'm confused. But I've chosen to wait in patience, and I've been able to do that, and I've felt good about it and been comforted along the way and then received more understanding later. But I know that other people aren't. I'm not as affected by the changes as other people would be, and it's hard for me to give the advice to do the same based on the circumstance that I don't really understand. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm glad you pointed that out. I think what you're saying is that patience is a privilege or being able to have patience really depends on your life situation. I would say the ease, the ease of patience. I mean, patience in and of itself is not easy, but there's still levels of unease within patience and inability within patience based on circumstance. And I think members in general believe endurance and patience they go hand in hand and everyone can do them they just have to have the will and the mindset and that's not I don't think that's necessarily true and I don't think it's that easy like I don't even think we should be telling minority communities that they need patience like I don't think we should be telling black people that they need to be patient with police brutality and with racism. I don't think we should be telling women that they should be patient with domestic violence and with rape. I don't think we should be telling disabled and neurodivergent people that we should be patient when it comes to vaccination and eugenics. I don't think we should be telling the LGBTQ community that they should be patient with rampant depression that they face and the super high suicide rate that many of them have in our church. Many of them, us, I'm by. I came out this week, surprise. Anyway, like I do not use patience to oppress other people. Mm-hmm. If you want to be patient yourself, do it, but don't get in the way of other people seeking to sucker marginalized people and seeking to dismantle the instruments of their own oppression. That's not your place. I do take a lot of comfort in the fact that the church is continually being restored. And I I hope that a lot of people that are minorities in the church can take comfort in that. I think that is why it's important to ask questions and not be afraid to ask questions, even if it is like, the prophet said this and I don't understand it. But that's the level that is a disconnect for me is I personally have enacted the idea of just wait in patience and things will come together. But I don't think that that would be so easy if I was, for example, LGBTQ in the church. Mm -hmm. So that's, I'm not completely in a place where I feel like I'm comfortable with my understanding there. And I hope to listen to more voices and gain more understanding on that so I can navigate that. Yeah. I'm grateful for your allyship, and I think you do a good job of of evaluating yourself. And yeah, 
things. But I also, not but to you, but just recircling back to this um, idea Mm-hmm. of control and authority with how hard it is for LGBTQ members, for disabled people, for black people and people of color in the church, with how hard it is and how bigoted some members can be and how harmful our history has been. I think it is totally valid to try to find peace and hope and comfort in places that that are outside the church. And I want to tell people that you deserve some peace and comfort in your life. Even if the church isn't giving it to you, you still deserve that because you're a human being. You know, you are wholly human and I support you in going whatever avenue you need to in order to be fulfilled and to be happy. If you ever want to talk to me about it, I'm on Twitter (laughs) and we have an Instagram where you can message us. Yeah, I just want to say thank you for saying that God is aware of you and loves you. And if you're in the church or if you leave the church, God is aware of you and loves you. That doesn't end if you leave the church. So I thank you. That's the end of our episode, friends. You can find us on Instagram at Holy Human. That's W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. And on Facebook at Holy Human Podcast. And our email is holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we would love to hear from you. And we want you to join our community. Keep sending us feedback. Thank you to Matib as well for creating our intro and outro music. We access the song through freesound.org. Thank you for listening. We will catch you next week.